Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. In today's episode, we're going to talk about cancer. The emperor of all maladies, in the elegant phrase Siddhartha Mukherjee used for the title of his famous book about the subject. And it would be hard to think of anything that humanity has more feared and put more energy into combating. And yet it remains one of the most common causes of suffering and death worldwide. As we've learned over decades of painful research, cancer is quite unlike most other diseases. Rather than something external attacking the body, causing some of your cells to function poorly, cancer is almost the opposite. Cancers are conditions where something has caused some of your cells to, in a way, function too well, to grow and reproduce more than they should, at the expense of the welfare of other cells surrounding. It's almost an internal rebellion, one or more of your body's tissues deciding that they don't want to pitch in for the common good and grow according to your body's master plan, but instead to selfishly grab whatever resources they can and grow as fast as they can, and to hell with the consequences. Most often this happens in the elderly, people whose cells have reproduced so often that some cancerous mistakes in the coding inevitably start happening, or in adults who have experienced long-term exposure to some kind of toxin that causes genetic misfiring, something like tobacco smoke or asbestos. But sometimes, heartbreakingly, Cancer happens in children, and in a way, it makes perfect sense that children get cancer sometimes. Cancer is a condition of unchecked growth, and growing is exactly what children's bodies are built to do. So kids don't need something to trigger cells to begin growing, they only need something to prevent them from stopping. Here's Dr. Michael Taylor, a pediatric oncologist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. So there's machinery within each cell to tell all the different types of cells when they should stop growing. When have you got enough brain? If you don't know when you've got enough brain, you grow too much brain, and we call that brain cancer. If you don't know when you've got enough muscle, you get too much muscle, and we call that a muscle cancer or a rhabdomyosarcoma. So a lot of the pediatric cancers are probably due to defects in the instructions of telling kids when they need to stop growing or specific tissues within their body which is different from the adult cancers, which are usually caused by an accumulation of mutations over time. Here's Dr. John Maris, a pediatric oncologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Pediatric cancers are not just small adult cancers. Pediatric cancers are fundamentally different in how they arise, and advances in adult cancers don't necessarily apply to pediatric cancers and, and vice versa. And children's cancers have always struggled to receive the same level of research funding as adult cancers. The primary reason for this is just simple triage of resources. The priority has always been to find the drugs and treatments that can help the most people, and so this often leaves rarer cancers less researched and less understood. Here's Dr. Lee Hellman of the National Cancer Institute at NIH. All pediatric cancers are rare cancers, so um, you're not going to get a blockbuster drug if you cure a common pediatric cancer, because relatively speaking, it's rare. But despite these challenges, there's really never been a more exciting time for people working to tackle pediatric cancer. And this past spring, the Academy held a three-day conference sponsored by the Sohn Conference Foundation called Pediatric Cancer in a Post-Genomic World, 
where some of the best minds in the field got together to share some of their most cutting-edge research and discuss the best ways to move forward toward a cure. Before we can talk about the post-genomic world in regards to pediatric cancer research, though, we have to talk about the genomic world, the incredible last 10 years, which have changed everything we know about cancer. What happened was the successful sequencing of the human genome, which has opened the door to the possibility of diagnosing and treating cancers in ways that had been unimaginable beforehand. Because while we've known or suspected for many decades that cancer is a condition based on genetic mutations, we had no way of finding these mutations. All cancer diagnosis was done histologically, which basically means taking out a piece of tumor and looking at it, then picking the treatment that has been used before on similar-looking tumors. Here's Dr. Taylor. In, if, if you went back 20 years ago, the way that a cancer was diagnosed was when a, a kid became sick and they had a lump somewhere in their arm or you know, in their brain or in their lungs or wherever, a surgeon would take a piece of that lump out, look at it under the light microscope using technology that was invented 500 years ago. And based on the appearance of the tumor under the light microscope, we'd say it's this kind of cancer. And as far as we know, the best kind of treatment for it is these drugs. And the, the, the drugs that we were using were just drugs that people had tried empirically. And by empirically, I mean people tried drugs at random until they found ones that seemed to work at least a little bit. And as he's implying, for a long time, the available treatments for cancer, drugs, a.k.a. chemotherapy, radiation treatments and surgeries, have largely been as blunt as they are powerful. In the case of surgery, the prevailing dogma for many decades was to cut as much as possible to prevent the spread of the disease, large areas of healthy tissue being removed along with the tumors. And with radiation and chemo, because we couldn't target the specific causes of cancerous mutations, we've instead resorted to trying to kill cancerous cells by targeting how they behave, devising treatments that kill any cells that try to rapidly reproduce. Those are what we'd call non-targeted therapies. They just kind of kill anybody who's moving too quickly. Most of the time, the mechanism is just that those old drugs, which a lot of them we still use, just kill cells that are dividing very, very rapidly. So cancer is full of rapidly dividing cells. And if you think about the other kinds of cells that are dividing rapidly, then you start to understand the side effects of chemotherapy, which are loss of your hair, because your hair cells are dividing rapidly, uh, ulcers in your mouth, because the, the cells in your mouth are dividing rapidly. The consequences of these kinds of treatments were often as perilous as the original disease. Radiation would leave patients so severely nauseated that they couldn't eat at all, and radical surgeries would leave patients in wheelchairs or without the use of limbs. And in fact, for some types of cancer, it was expected that the chemotherapy would kill a certain percentage of patients. Because then you knew that you were giving cancer, or you were giving the chemotherapy in a high enough dose that nobody was dying of their cancer necessarily. You know, if, if nobody died of the chemo, it meant, meant that you weren't given enough chemo. This kind of brute force approach is particularly problematic in children because unlike adults, they have rapidly dividing cells all over their bodies. It's how they grow and develop into adults. So what we're finding is we start to have patients who we cured of childhood cancer 10, 20, 30 years ago, is that the cost of those cures to their overall health is often dramatic. Here's Dr. Hellman. 
We've had tremendous success in treating pediatric cancer over the years. We cure in the range of 80% of patients who develop pediatric cancer, even though we cure a lot of these patients now, um, they, they pay a price with long-term side effects. Loss of IQ, um, early, early aging. It's clear now that patients are, are more susceptible to um, early coronary artery disease. For example, adriamycin, it's a drug we use commonly in many pediatric tumors. It affects the heart. And we, as we follow these patients out longer and longer, they have long-term effects of being given these drugs that have toxicity to the heart 30 years later. Here's Professor Kathy Pritchard-Jones of the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children in London, followed by Dr. David Malkin of the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Of course, the questions every parent asks when their child's diagnosed with cancer, particularly in this terrible situation, is, you know, can my child be cured of Wilms tumor? Well, the answer there is yes. I mean, it's relatively curable cancer. And if you could take both kidneys out without consequence, you'd be looking at 90% plus cure rate for this child. But of course, you don't want to take the kidneys out um, in curing a child who's got bilateral disease. They have a patient with a glioblastoma or a sarcoma or a breast cancer or whatever you name it, and the treatment of choice is radiation or chemotherapy. What should we do? Because both of those approaches to, chemo to, to treatment of a P53 initiated tumor are devastating. And so basically we're causing more harm than good by treating the patient which is intuitively makes no sense. And here's Dr. Hellman again. So not only do we need to find ways to cure patients that we haven't had success in, but we have to find better ways to treat even the patients that we quote are successful in, in terms of cure rates. And that's getting us to what was so exciting about the sequencing of the genome. Because cancer is largely a genetic disease, a disorder of mutations causing cells to misfire and grow uncontrollably. It was hoped that the fully sequenced genome would be a doorway to a whole new kind of cancer therapy, something called precision medicine, which is finding a specific treatment to safely and effectively cure a specific person's disease. Here's Dr. Katherine Janeway of the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorders Center. Um, and so when I think about precision cancer medicine, um, it, it's really, uh, we use this very often as a sort of a buzzword. And it's really useful, I think, to think about what we really mean by this term. And what we really mean is individualizing patient care. And we want to do this in order to provide just enough of the right therapy for the individual patient. And our goal in doing this is to decrease side effects um, and increase success. And there's no doubt that our newfound knowledge of genetics has allowed us to treat cancer better than we ever have before. This has largely been by adding a heck of a lot more nuance to the diagnostic process. By isolating some of the genetic drivers behind different kinds of cancer, we've learned that many tumors we used to think were the same, because they looked the same under the microscope, are actually quite different and respond very differently to treatments. Here's Dr. Paul Sorensen, a pathologist at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Genetics has really helped in this, in this context. It's, it's been good for diagnosis, predicting therapy, and really getting patients, particularly, particularly pediatric patients, on the proper therapy. If there's a genetic lesion 
that's characteristic of a certain disease type. Well, it could be a mutation, it could be some kind of chromosomal rearrangement, it could be loss of a gene, then it kind of simplifies the classification process because it means you can look for that lesion and if it's there, you call it this entity. And then that particular entity has a cer certain therapy that people have worked out over decades that works the best for that tumor type. So it allows you to classify diseases uh, and, and you're not dependent on, on looking at them uh, purely under the microscope. And here's Dr. Taylor again. They, they happen in different age groups, they happen in different gender ratios, uh, they have different mutations, they have different genes that are turned on and off, and they respond differently to therapy and they have different survivals. With the most extreme case being in the tumor that I mainly focus on, something called medulloblastoma, which is cancer of the cerebellum. There's four different types of medulloblastoma. If you take the best kind and the worst kind, they look exactly the same under the microscope, but genetically they're completely different. One has a survival rate of almost 100%, one has a survival rate of about 40%. Wow. Ten years ago, we couldn't have told you, we didn't even know they existed, and we, we would have just told you, well, we don't know if you're going to live or die. Now, if you have the really good variety, we can say, well, you're going to live, almost for sure. And for those patients, what we're doing is we're probably just going to give them a little bit less therapy so that we can try and diminish some of the effects of therapy on their developing brain. And for those kids who have the really bad variants, we're going to give them more experimental therapy earlier on. So one of the big things that genomics has allowed us to do is to drill down to that next layer and tell the apples from the oranges. What we're also learning from our newfound knowledge of the genome, though, is that knowledge of the genome isn't enough. And that's what this conference was really about. Now that we're starting to unlock the secrets of the genome, what's next? What else are we going to have to know to be beating childhood cancer in a way that looks more like a victory and less like a survivable defeat? Here's Dr. Maris. There's been, over the last five years, um, an incredibly exponentially increased amount of learning about the genome of pediatric cancers. And what post-genome means to me is, uh, okay, what are we going to do about that? And how are we going to make that impact um, patient survival? To begin with, we're going to have to understand not just genetics, but also epigenetics. How that genetic code is used and expressed. There's a, been a huge revolution, largely led in pediatrics, about understanding how the way the information is processed and stored is important in cancer and how to, how to unlock some of the changes that have been made in, in the process of becoming a cancer cell. To understand this, think of each of your cells as a factory for producing more factories. The correct number of copies of itself to make up a particular tissue or organ. And think of cancer as a manufacturing error, the factory messing up its orders and producing the wrong thing. The genome, the code of genes and chromosomes embedded in your DNA, is the blueprint that lays out the design of that factory. Here's where the doors and walls go, here's the plumbing and wiring charts, here's the design for the assembly line machinery. That's all crucial, but it's not the only place that an error could occur. You could also make a mistake in how those plans are executed. The builders could put something in the wrong place, wire something incorrectly, do a bad job of putting up one of those walls. And that's the epigenome, how the plans are realized. 
And it's a way you could have a fatal production error, even if the underlying plans are sound. Here's Dr. Sorensen. The genome doesn't predict all biological behavior. There's a whole other platform that, that we've largely ignored up to now, and that's what's happening to proteins. You will never know that by sequencing the genome. So you miss a lot because it has to go from DNA to RNA to protein. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. And, and that's another le level of complexity that most people are scared of. This way of thinking, of looking beyond the genome to the larger systems that the genome is a part of, points to another fundamental flaw in the traditional methods of diagnosing cancers and assessing and assigning cancer treatments. They're largely static. You're looking at a single piece of a tumor taken from a biopsy conducted at a particular time. The way clinical practice is handled these days, there's a single biopsy and all the diagnostic and prognostic and drug therapy information is based on that single biopsy. But like all diseases, all biological functions really, cancer isn't static and it isn't simple. We're learning, for one thing, that different parts of even the same tumor can be quite different from each other. Tumor sequences in one region of the tumor might be different than a millimeter over, right? So if you base all your therapy on one biopsy and there's a different set of driver mutations a centimeter, a centimeter over, then you have a bit of a problem, right? Because you're, you're just treating one part of the tumor. And it may be that the part you missed is what's going to give, on, give rise to resist, resistant, drug-resistant disease. That's a really big issue. And because most courses of cancer treatment are based upon a single biopsy, they don't take into account how a tumor may have changed since the original diagnosis. Amazing when you think about how cancer is a disease of change, of uncontrolled growth. Who's to say that a particular patient's cancer won't have mutated exponentially between the first round of treatments and a second round performed months later? Here's Dr. Sorensen again, followed by Dr. Hellman. They take a biopsy, they determine the genetic makeup, they treat, and then the patient is basically left alone. Rather than coming back and, and taking additional pieces of the tumor after therapy to see what the genetics look like after therapy. Because then you can start to figure out which of the cells that survived the therapy. Isn't that important? It's insane. Why are we doing this? We are setting ourselves up for failure. So we have to discipline ourselves and admit if we want to use targeted therapies, we ought to look at what the tumor looks like at the time we're going to start the therapy. This is additionally problematic because we only perform these diagnostic biopsies on tumors that are large enough to biopsy. That means that once we've gotten someone's cancer into remission, we don't really do much until the disease relapses. Maybe we're missing opportunities to prevent that relapse rather than just treating it when it occurs. Here's Dr. Richard Gilbertson of the Cancer Center at Cambridge University in England. So I think it's really shocking that we treat children um, and get them into relapse, get them into remission rather, and then we simply wait for them to relapse till they have bulky disease. Now we know uh, in leukemia, and we know in many solid tumors, that it's way too late when that child comes back. We already know that the survival from relapsed disease in most cancers is pretty abysmal. 
And here's Dr. Elizabeth Marr of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Waiting for recurrence is just a terrible way to live, first of all, because it's a totally, who knows? I mean, today could be a great day, today, tomorrow could be a horrible day. And we just have no way of knowing. And you know that those cells are sitting there and you're watching and you're watching. It's an important piece, not just simply so that we can figure out uh, when to treat someone in the recurrent setting, but also to learn about the biology of these tumors. And if you can see the cells, um, and if you can, if you can, you can detect either some change in a biomarker, then maybe you have a handle also not just for imaging but on the biology. Now, none of this is to say that we haven't made a lot of progress in treating cancer more effectively. We unquestionably have. Here's Dr. Robert Weschler Rea of the Sanford Burdum Prebis Medical Discovery Institute in California. I want to um, take a moment to acknowledge how far we've come. Um, we often talk about how far we need to go, but um, you need to recognize that if you were a brain tumor patient before 1920, you probably um, had your tumor removed by a surgeon who looked like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. Um, he used as his surgical instrument an apple corer and um, left a hole in your head the size of a golf ball, and you survived after this for about two to three weeks. So uh, we are much better now at this than we used to be. Um, brain tumor therapy today involves um, guided surgery. It involves uh, craniospinal radiation with now proton or photon beam. Um, it involves a cocktail of very uh, potent chemotherapeutic agents, and with that, uh, patients with pediatric brain tumors um, survive in some cases for several years. But when we start looking to the genome and beyond, to the overall mechanism of how cancer cells develop and function, all sorts of new ideas for treatments begin to present themselves. Treatments that have the potential to work better and more safely than the standard triumvirate of surgery, chemo, and radiation. One line of inquiry that many are excited about is looking at the metabolism of cancer cells, how they feed themselves and get the energy they need to divide. Here's Dr. Marr, followed by Dr. Hellman. You're totally struck when you're watching this grow in front of your eyes and you're absolutely totally powerless to do anything about it, which is that you know the metabolic requirements of these rapidly proliferating high-grade tumors is, is, is immense. You know, where do those, uh, the, the bio, uh, why does it, where does the bioenergy come from? Where do the intermediates come from? And I have a patient who, who put it most simply to me and said, you know, if you could empty out the gas tank, maybe that would be a good treatment. I'm getting very excited about um, trying to understand alterations in either epigenetic or genetic alterations that fundamentally change the metabolic programming in pediatric cancer cells. I think that but this is something that we're going to uh, begin to see more of, and I think it's going to yield some interesting novel therapeutic approaches. Another path many are pursuing is something called immunotherapy, modifying and strengthening the body's own immune system to fight cancer. Immunotherapy can be the use of targeted T-cells to kill cancer cells. It can be the use of these so-called checkpoint inhibitors, which are drugs that allow, that, that remove a break on the, immune on the immune cells so there may be a cancer 
where there are immune cells that are paralyzed. And by using a checkpoint inhibitor, it allows these cells now to reactivate, recognize a cancer. So that's another form of immunotherapy. And I think another form of, uh, of immunotherapy is, um, is the use of antibodies. Here's Dr. Paul Sundell of the University of Wisconsin. Pediatric oncologists are dreamers. Uh, I'm a dreamer, and we're hoping and hypothesizing that by using appropriate immunotherapeutic approaches, we might be able to target tumors that are low in their neoantigen content, might be able to do this in a way we could be extrapolating this to not only pediatric but adult cancers, and the idea is to be using a patient's in-situ cancer as a vaccine. Our goal is to turn all of these mechanisms on. And as you're familiar with, in 2010, this story came out that the patients that were put into remission with their upfront chemotherapy and an autologous stem cell transplant and then randomized to receive that immunotherapy regimen versus the standard therapy of retinoic acid alone showed a dramatic difference favoring the immunotherapy. So that's become the current standard of care in North America. Uh, this last year, this approach has been approved by the FDA and by the EMA in Europe. Uh, and it's clearly a step in the right direction. These are just a couple of the dozen or so exciting different research approaches that were proposed and discussed at this conference. And if there's something nearly everyone in attendance could agree on, it's that the best hope for the victims of childhood cancer, and of all cancers, is going to lie in combining these methods, putting our heads together to attack cancer from every possible angle. Here's Dr. Maris, followed by Dr. Gilbertson. I think that um, what this conference has really coalesced is that there's not one individual approach that's going to fix the problem. Um, it's not going to be precision medicine with small molecule drugs. It's not going to be immunotherapy. That we have to develop a comprehensive strategy that takes in the knowledge that's been presented over these three days, um, and 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 be very strategic about how we implement this to improve patient outcomes. And I'm very excited that. Um, you know, there's been tremendous advancement, and I think there's huge opportunity moving forward. And I think that's really the most important message, is that everyone in this room has very different skills, they have very different disciplines. Some of you are surgeons, some of you are oncologists, some of you are trainees, some of you are lab scientists. We all have different skills, but if we're going to defeat cancer in children, we're going to have to work together to create that tapestry that will achieve that. Our, bi our biology is telling this, we can either throw our hands up or we can do something about it. So. And here's Dr. Hellman. Understanding how we might want to combine epigenetic drug targets with genetic drug targets with immunotherapy targets, this is a new, it's a new age and we're just at the very beginning of trying to sort this out. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with the assistance of Kerry Kasten, and with administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Brooke Gridlinger, Dr. Daniel Radiloff, and Dr. Melanie Brickman-Borchard. Thanks to all the experts who appeared in this episode, Drs. Michael Taylor and David Malkin of the Hospital for Sick Children and the University of Toronto, Dr. John Maris of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Lee Hellman of the National Cancer Institute at the National Institutes of Health, Kathy Pritchard-Jones of the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children and University College London, Dr. Catherine Janeway of the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorders Center, 
Dr. Paul Sorensen of the University of British Columbia, Dr. Richard Gilbertson of Cambridge University, Dr. Elizabeth Marr of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Dr. Robert Weschler Rea of Sanford Burnham Prebis Institute of Medical Discovery, and Dr. Paul Sondell of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. All the quotes used in this podcast were recorded at the event Pediatric Cancer in a Post-Genomic World, held at the New York Academy of Sciences March 30th through April 1st, 2016. That event and this podcast were made possible through the generous support of the Sone Conference Foundation. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media, at NYA Sciences on Twitter and the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.